welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and this being Close Reads, I am joined by the regular roster, Angelina Stanford, Tim McIntosh, and of late, Heidi White. How's it going, y'all? It's going good. It's great. Ducky. Ducky. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh. Is it good or like, bad? It's good. It's like a damp version of I'm great. I have to you learn something new every day. This is so it, it's folks. the Pacific Northwest Ducky. version. It's the Pacific Northwest <laughs> version of um extreme blessedness and, and happiness. Oh in a damp way. This is a sweet moment. <laughs> so like but all of our listeners should know something, it's less. Now I'm so confused. Just <laughs> next time you meet someone from the Pacific Northwest, just trust me, listeners. Just walk right up to them and just say, Hey, I'm Ducky. How are you? Just wow. go ahead and do it. This is a setup. This is like yeah, I was gonna say this is definitely <laughs> Then they grab my purse and run. Yeah. I'm ne- I'm never gonna do actually who am I kidding? I'm definitely gonna do that. For sure. Um, <laughs> Oh, well, we are here to conclude our conversation about Wendell Berry's novel, Hannah Coulter. We are going to answer listener questions. Before we do that, though, I do need to say a quick word from our partner this, uh, this, this week, I guess this month. If you are interested in kind of a one-in-a-lifetime one, one a a opportunity um, on a uh, higher education from a higher education, you know, maybe we should just start this over. <laughs> um, either way, thanks to our friends over at Augustan College because they have a new uh, program in the United States that they are doing in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Virginia. This is what happens when you don't just directly read the copy that they give you, right? If you just read the copy, David, everything would be okay. Overconfident. Um, Overconfident. Yeah, exactly. I thought, you know, I thought, I thought I'd be okay, um, but every now and then, you, you know, you fail in front of thousands of people. Um, <laughs> But they, Augustine College has been a great partner of ours for a few years. As I've said before, they've spoken at our conferences and they're up in Canada, but they have this, this uh, new program that's in Blacksburg, Virginia. Um, they have scholarships available for it. It's a one-year Christian classical liberal arts program. If you've never been to Blacksburg, Virginia, um, you should go. It's a beautiful part of the country. So if you have a student who's interested in this or you yourself might be interested, you can head over to truthisbeautiful.org to learn more. And again, that's truthisbeautiful.org. You know, we have a, well, I have a good friend, but who's also a Cersei friend and goes to a lot of conferences, uh, Emily Aldrich Rogers, mm-hmm. shout out to her. She, yeah. she did the Augustine program when it was in Canada and loved it, spoke really well of it. It was good. It was a really good experience for her. Nice. So if you also want to just, you know, get the inside story, the inside scoop, find Emily Aldrich on Facebook. Just and rush her. her, just rush her at the conference. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She would okay. actually probably like that. We are, um. We are here, as I said, to answer listener questions. Um, this episode is going up late, so we're just going to dive right into it um, to, you know, give our uh, editor a chance to get it up and get it get it all edited. It's Saturday, so um, I don't want to <clears throat> make it too long for him, too much work for him. So let's just dive into these questions here. Um, the first question comes from Heather, and um, these questions were all posted on the Facebook page, on the thread that we posted. How did you all interpret the last chapter? Heather asks. She says. Um, I said she's not caught up on the podcast yet, but is wondering if folks saw that as her death and meeting again with her with her husband in heaven or question mark, question mark. Uh, Heidi, I'll let you have the first crack at that. Did you read that as a like literal death or she's having a vision of a future death or is it a dream she's having? How did you read this section? It's a really great question because it is an ambiguous ending. I did read it as a record of her death. And if you were to ask me how they got it and put it in the book, I don't know. I'm not quite sure that's the point. But uh, that first line, I am standing at the gate, that does indeed indicate to me a change, a passing through. Uh, And also- The pearly gates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The illusions there. Yes. And then also the tense change. The book is written in past tense. And then in this last bit, it's written in the present, which- to me indicated a, a perspective change seemed very significant. So I did interpret it as her death. Hmm. Yeah, that, that tense change, and I don't want to steal Angelina or Tim's thunder if they were going to say this, but the tense change, as well as a few other like formal things that he does in the writing, certainly lend sort of like a dream-like, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that it's a dream, but they lend sort of a non-present, I don't know what, that's not really a thing you say, non-present, right. but it feels like it's not the world of the living. 
Right. So, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. There's a, there's a number of little phrases that, that no, it does make know. sense. Yeah. Angelina, what do you think? Well, I didn't really overthink the chapter. Um, I would agree that it feels dreamlike and otherworldly. Um, and it, it did feel to me like the culmination of, you know, the next world. So her life is over and now she's being reunited with Nathan and the other world. But I, I, I didn't, over, I didn't really think about it. I just accepted it as the natural resolution of the story that mm-hmm. in the next life they will meet. So I didn't ask myself, is this really happening? Is she like, okay, I'll just say this. I like what you said about a dreamlike quality. I don't think you ask those questions of a dream sequence, right? Like what is really happening? <laughs> like, like we don't ask those questions about our own dreams. We just accept a certain amount of weirdness. Yeah, right. <laughs> and time right. weirdness too. There's a lot of time weirdness in dreams. Things are sped up and dragged out. And mm. yeah, and so, like after the fact, it feels like you were, it was three seconds, but you might've really been dreaming. Oh, oh no, six hour. days I had this dream. Five minutes went by. Right. <laughs> Somebody's out there like, you guys don't know anything about how the science of dreaming, do you? Maybe we should read a book. <laughs> Tim, next, to- next book. <laughs> exactly. That's the Close Reads Science Edition. So, um, the, the nonfiction version. Tim, did you have anything to add to that? Do you, do you think it's a literal death? So, um, kind of how Heidi's reading it? Do you, how do you, do you have anything to add to that? I, I took it as just sort of like a future imagining. Um, mm. Like maybe it was a dream. Maybe it was that kind of like wakeful hoping that happens at least for me, kind of like right before I like actually fall asleep when I'm laying mm. in bed. Mm. Um I didn't take it. I mean, I'm with Angelina. I don't, I didn't read too much into it. I think it was just a lovely bit of literal, like poetic licenses. Like mm-hmm. this is like almost the definition or a, a perfect example of what poetic license is. But I, I imagined it more as a um, future imagining. You know, it's funny because there were uh, quite a few questions on the Facebook page going back to our first discussion about, you know, the role of the Aeneid in here because you got the Virgils and all of that. And um, there are moments in the Aeneid that's like this, right, where Virgil is always playing with the tense. And so sometimes things are really happening right in this moment. Sometimes it's in the back, but a lot of it is projecting forward in this like prophetic sequence, dream sequences, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So he's all, uh, so he's always, he's always moving in the narrative forward, backward and present all at the same time. Hmm. So That's I wonder, a great point. Angelina. I had not thought about, I've, I've noticed that in the Aeneid before that he changes tenses, but I would have never thought to compare it with, with this. That was keenly observant. Oh, well, thank you. I can't, I mean, a lot of people on Facebook were making that connection and Heidi was the one who originally brought it up. But, but yeah, so if we, if we think about if he's, if he's trying to be kind of deliberate about that and it's the same sort of thing, like it's, it's three levels of reality happening in different chronological times, but it's all at the same time hmm. in terms of the narrative. Right. It's really, inter- it's really interesting to me. I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but if you go back to the last page before chapter 24, this two paragraphs is what you get on 185. This is like, if you don't, if you take out the little coda at the end there, the chapter called given, this is how it ends. Um, and it seems to relate to the question of death. It's, she writes, now and then the thought drifts into my mind that Virgie might actually prove himself a farmer and become worthy of the Feltner place and mm-hmm. live there. And that Margaret, by his good favor, might end her days there and all come somehow right at last. And then I let it drift on by. I let it come and go like a leaf floating on the river. Mm. I know by now that the love of ghosts is not expected. Ghosts. And I'm coming to that. This virgie of mine, this newfound verge, is the last care of my life. And I know the ignorance I must cherish in him. I must care for him as I care for a wildflower or a singing bird. No terms, no expectations. As finally I care for Port William and the ones who have been here with me. I want to leave here open-handed with only the ancient blessing. Goodbye, my love to you all. So, hmm. it's interesting I mean, those, the, those are those those um, paragraphs that, that are steep, certainly in yes. in mm-hmm. the theme of death. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it could have ended there, so it's interesting that he chose to add this coda at the end. Yes, and one thing that somebody mentioned that I'm interested in y- y'all's perspective on is, so it's if she's died and she's reuniting with Nathan, why Nathan but not Virgil? 
So somebody made this point on the Facebook page. I believe it was Emily Upchurch. So shout out to her. I thought this was super profound and I felt really stupid that I didn't see it myself, but here you go. This is a little close read to humility. We actually do not catch everything, but she said, this was so good. Y'all the first Virgil went off from home and was missing and never came back. The second Virgil goes off from home and is missing but he comes back. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe that's why it's Nathan and not Virgil, because the Virgil plot line is complete in the second Virgil, if that makes and sense. And of course, Virgil is Margaret's son. Virgie is Margaret's son, who was right. Virgil's daughter, not Nathan's right. daughter. So the return yeah. of the grandson Virgil is the, the culmination and the resolution of that storyline. Okay. Right. Well, and if we look at, say, Dante who we know Wendell Berry loved and patterned Jaber Crow after, we know that Virgil does not guide Dante or the pilgrim into paradise. Right. Oh, good. That's good. That's good. And then if we think about my favorite fairy tale motifs, um, I feel like our readers probably have heard me say this a million times, but I'll say it again. Um, There are two uh, fairy tale story patterns one is the bride and the groom right the prince and the princess so he he goes out and he rescues the girl and the end of the story is the resolution of those two characters so whatever obstacles have been overcome and now it's to wedding or in the case of the odyssey a reunion but there's always that bride and bridegroom reunion so we have that with the nathan thing right margaret not margaret hannah and nathan the bride and bridegroom are reunited in the afterlife the second fairy motif fairy tale motif is the parent-child motif that something always happens at the story like Hansel and Gretel or whatever where parent and child are separated a bunch of obstacles I'm making it very short but a bunch of obstacles are overcome and the fairy tale ends with the reunion of the parent and the child so we get that motif with the grandchild parent thing with Virgil coming back and being reunited with the grandmother so both of those fairy tale motifs are in here. And and a few people on the Facebook page, and again, feel like an idiot that I didn't think of this, but a few people mentioned the fairy tale elements in this book that it's Hannah starts off basically like Cinderella, wicked stepmother, <laughs> you know, yeah. fairy godmother, uh, the grandmother who does in fact give her a dress <laughs> to set her off on her next adventure and, hmm. and all of that. So, um, and that might help to explain the, non-literal weirdness of the last chapter you know it's kind of dreamlike fairy tale mm-hmm. but it's yeah. interesting that both of them come true so that's my guess of why it's not virgil because virgil's function in the story is differently also you're basically asking us the question that they asked jesus a woman gets married eight times who's <laughs> <laughs> her husband in the afterlife <laughs> tim, i don't know <laughs> tim could you answer that question for us um, if a woman gets married eight times, do you yeah, not? You're the one with the theology degree. Go for it. Do you not know that there will neither be a giving or taking of marriage? Isn't that how Jesus begins the answer? That was kinder than he deserved because Jesus's actual response is, "You do not understand Scripture or the power of God." <laughs> I edited that part out for the, sake of, for the sake of peace. Hey Tim, do you have anything you want to add to this, or should we no. move on to the next question? No, no, no. next question okay. would be great. Um, okay. There's a lot of questions in here about what sort of what Barry's saying about how we live. So we'll start with a a few of these just for, you know, just to challenge ourselves. Susan, um, who has the little hot coffee mug next to her name, Uh her posts are getting so much response to them so good job to susan johnson um oh, she asked that's the thing i need to catch up on this yeah, social i media. didn't know that either yeah, it's new wow <laughs> it's amazing. a little coffee cup there and i'm like, so proud because i've got like a new goal in life yeah, exactly um i don't know what the standards are though because they told me that i got one and i had like four comments on my my post so i don't know I don't so really you're know. saying it's easy so it might be easy yeah all right so um susan asks is membership too exclusive a term and she says, I knew the idea from Barry, but always thought he meant that everyone in Port William was a member of one community. And I loved that idea. Reading this book made me realize he meant just their little group of friends and family. And I'm not opposed to having a close community of friends and family, but just calling it a membership create a feeling of exclusivity that isn't good for the members. 
is that how you guys re- read this book? He's saying that that the membership is just the friends and family. He- Heidi is Heidi's in the studio right now, so she's like shaking her head. So I'm gonna. She looks like she wants to answer. Uh, yes, see, that's what's great about being face in face, person, yeah. right? Yeah. I did not read it from that perspective, though I can see how that could be interpreted that way. What, how I read it, was that everybody who every local person who participated in the relationships, kind of the liturgy of their daily life and the year of farming and the meaningful work was a part of the membership. Okay. So it's not the family. It's right. based so, on the work. Right. It's so based those, on who the people are. Exactly. Exactly. So those who helped, who participated, those who uh, contributed to the work uh, and the community were a part of the membership. So the membership is not something that's based on blood or geography. Right. It's based on the contribution. Well, by necessity, it's based on geography. Uh, right. And but, not, but it's not like right. just because you live there doesn't mean right. you're part of the membership. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. And then it's specifically tied to the work, which is specifically tied to the land, which creates that golden thread of continuity that Barry relies so heavily upon. Yeah, he says something right about you have to volunteer, like you have to choose it, right? Let's see if I can find it. You have to make a choice to participate, right? Uh, so, you know, so I thought about while well, Heidi look, looks it up, I, I thought a lot about this because a lot of the questions are kind of similar about mm-hmm. what, what Barry is showing in this book, and I suppose we can argue if this is a flaw or not. But I, I think that there's a danger of overreading too much of any one book, right? Mm. Because the whole, all of his books are about Port William. And I think each one is just trying to give a different emphasis on something. So where Jaber Crow showed much more the the town as a whole and the town as the whole community. And, and, and actually one of the points is that you really, you can't choose who your community is because, mm. ha- you know, you just, you're born into it just like a family and that that's part of what happens um, as opposed to, moderns we we want to choose our community of like-minded people that we pre-approve and you know assume right. we're automatically going to love and and so we don't cs lewis talks about that's what affection is when you're thrown in with somebody that you would not necessarily like and you learn to have affection for them i feel like jaber crow shows that a lot hmm. but that hannah coulter is focusing on a different different aspect of that idea because we actually don't see because this is hannah's story and we don't see her in town we don't have those scenes that we have in Jaber Crow where she's at the store and she's talking to the store clerk or she goes to church or we actually don't see her pretty much anywhere, but at her house with three different houses she lives in. Right. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think then for Hannah's story, because she's primarily talking about her home that she's built, she's talking about the membership of people who are all committed to building these homes together in this one place. And I don't think that when that's necessarily Wendell Berry's last word on anything, but that's just another part of the whole, if that makes sense. Hmm. Right. Tim, do you have thoughts on this? I, I agree. I don't think that it, the membership was meant to be exclusive. I mean, everything that Heidi said, I agree with, I think I, I was, I was imagining what if someone um, like, what if a cousin moved nearby and sometimes participated in the work, but sometimes didn't participate in the work because the cousin had other commitments or something like that. Would that cousin be part of the membership? And I thought, yeah, probably so. I, I think the membership probably had slightly porous, not even slightly porous borders. I think it had porous, porous borders because, um, I agree. I think it was about the work and the tie to the land. Hmm. Okay, Tim, I'm going to turn this next question over to you. I want to, we're only, we've got through two questions so far, so I'm going to move a little quickly on some of these other ones. I think. Yeah. Um, Carla, asks, Carla says, <clears throat> reading this book does make you rethink the way you live. However, being able to think about your choices and having choices to begin with makes me wonder if this makes this book too American or even too middle-class 
and high-class American. Many people around the world can't even dream of owning any type of land, and by land, it can just be a tiny apartment. Many are trying to survive violence in their homes, so they don't have the choice Nathan had to leave the violence and go back to a peaceful home. Does this narrow the audience the book will reach? And then Phyllis tags onto that and just says, um, she wonders if sometimes the American books that we're reading, um, sometimes they feel like they're too American. So I'm yeah. what you think of that. I think if Barry, through this book and his other Port William books, is advocating that we move to a farm and take up the farming life, if that's what he was doing, then I think that could be the charge, like it's too American or too middle class, would be a fair charge. I don't think that's what he's doing, though, so I don't think it's a fair charge. I think that he's, I mean, we've taught, it feels to me like in this show, the shows that we've done about Hannah Coulter, the primary preoccupation that we've had, the kind of like meta question that we've been asking is, what exactly is he advocating? Hmm. Is, yeah, is he true. just putting, is he advocating for a way of life that is necessarily contingent upon us having farmland and becoming farmers? I don't think so. Is he advocating for a set of values that are only, can only be subscribed to if one lives in a bucolic setting? Mm. Uh, I don't think so. Is he advocating that we try to live our lives like Hannah lived her life? I think that's closer to it, but I don't even know that that's it because I think he would say there's something about Hannah's life that is really bound up with the form of life that she was born into. And we weren't born, most of us were not born into that form of life. I'll be honest, I'm still struggling with what with what this book is other than I, I thought the other day I was driving down the road and I thought, what if it's a hagiography? What if it's just a good old fashioned huh. celebration of sainthood? Um, and, and right now that's, that's the closest I can come. Now hagiographies have a bad name today because they sort of purport to be histories, but then include all sorts of fantastic things. The miracles that this saint did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, so are you, people are, are you thinking kind of like similar to Chesterton's Frank St. Francis book. Yes. I think it's something that's a really good comparison. Or I, I don't know that's his St. Francis book, but I know the dumb ox, his Aquinas right. book. Right, and right, I right. think that's for me, that's kind of the closest that I can, if, if we had to like choose a genre, that's the closest that I would come to the genre of Hannah Coulter. I think it's a hmm. kind of a modern hagiography. That's really interesting. That that's that is interesting because one of the things that's true about those types of medieval stories is that they exaggerate one virtue intentionally to make mm -hmm. the point, right? It's supposed to be a teaching lesson. Yeah. And uh, one of the problems that modern readers have is they'll be, which a lot of our readers have had about this book. Well, that's unrealistic. No one could be that patient or that kind. Or, But I mean, that's the point. <laughs> that's why it's the life right. of a saint. It's an exaggerated right. virtue to teach us what that virtue looks like. And it doesn't, doesn't ask the question, what is real? I thought that was a really good question too. And um, I've been thinking about it since it was posted. I, th I think where I land on that is that I think ultimately what this book is about is what is home and that that's, that's a universal quest fits in with our Aeneid motif we've been talking about too. Um, and so in these other countries, especially war-torn countries, um, there is that people are still struggling with the same thing of homelessness. They're literally exiled. They're literally homeless. They're literally in refugee camps and they're suffering as a result of that. Many countries are trying to figure out how to rebuild after that. And what does it mean to reestablish community and home and relationship when you've had so much loss? And I, th I think that Wendell Berry is trying to get Americans to realize we're, we're, um, at least spiritually suffering from the same thing that the rest of the world is suffering from, which is homelessness um, and a sense of exile. And um, we're kind of all living in spiritual refugee camps, so to speak, but we and don't so realize that, that in the world that he knows. So he's right. right. And we don't, we don't realize that because we're living in, you know, huge mansions, especially compared to the rest of the world. And we have all this luxury um, and we're blinded to it. We, we're really blinded to our own emptiness because we're, we have so much luxury. 
Mm. But yeah, so I think he's speaking to the universal human question, what is home? Mm. It would be interesting to know what a refugee um, reading this book, you know, like from some, from a war-torn country, if that person read Hannah Coulter, I wonder how they would, oh, would they question. long for what Hannah has? Would they say, oh, this is just kind of a fairyland story? Not that that reading, not that, that you know, a refugee's reading is the reading, but it would be, it would shed some light on the book, I think, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea that we keep going back to the Aeneid, which is the originally, which is the original refugee story, yeah, is well, also after, interesting. After the Israelites, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. The well, non-Hebraic. <laughs> okay, fine. No, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> the original, original. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, I, that didn't mean I didn't mean that to be combative. No, I'm teasing. Um, one of the. Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really interested in what Tim brought up in his answer about the meta question that we keep talking about. Uh, I'm thinking of Keats and he came up with a term that I like called negative capability. Mm -hmm. And in a literary context, what this, what negative capability means is the author's ability Uh, to disconnect from the story so that you can't tell exactly what he is trying to get at. He's simply telling a story and leaving it up to the reader so that uh, to Keats, this was a virtue of an author that he would, that, uh, and he used Shakespeare as an example. Like you can read the Henry ad in Shakespeare and you're not really sure whether, what, whether Henry V is a good Christian king or whether he is flawed and scheming because Shakespeare doesn't make it clear what his opinion is. He is negatively, he's negative in the story. He takes himself out of it. Wendell Berry uh, has very little negative capability. You really look into his stories and you see he is saying something through this yeah. story. Mm-hmm. Lewis, mm-hmm. And, and Keats considered it a, a virtue, but we don't have to, right? That was his opinion about it. You look at C.S. Lewis, it's very clear what he's trying to say in his story. He's one of the greatest authors of all time. So, uh, but the, the question of what is Wendell Berry trying to say, it's very obvious in his books that that is an interpretive question, that that question matters. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, Tim, you're getting at something really important in that some books, you really don't have to answer that question. You can accept the story at face value. You can put your own interpretations right. on it. Whereas you, we have an emotional reaction to Wendell Berry because his negative capability is very low. So right. I realize I'm staying meta here, but I'm saying this is a really good question and not one we necessarily have to answer. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know- I mean, I've actually read him say, and this speaks to what you're saying, I've read where Wendell Berry has said, I don't believe in the show, not tell distinction. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and a lot of people have commented on the Facebook page. He does a lot of telling. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. Well, each, you know, his, the, he gets different mileage out of that sort of thing in his different books. Sure. Yes. And he also, oh. the first person narrative. So it's, it's a little iffy, you know, you can True. get away with it, I think. But go ahead. Yeah. True. You can couch it in the perspective of your character. Tim, go ahead. Before we move on to the yeah, next question. I think there's a couple of, I think for me, it's been help, very helpful to think about authors kind of falling into these two big buckets that, that Heidi described one of them, like the negative capability. And I think Shakespeare is a great example. I think Chekhov is a great example. Oh yeah. I that's think good. Gustave Flaubert is a great example. They are, they're determined to be the craftsman that tells the story as faithfully as they can tell it. <laughs> Flaubert has this quote, I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's something to the effect of the, the, the novelist should be like God everywhere felt, but nowhere seen. Hmm. And I mean, I think he's acknowledging the novelist does kind of have this role over the characters in the setting. Right. He's creating them like God right. created the earth. Right. But, and it's disorienting um, when you see the lines being drawn. Right. Yes, right, right. Um, so I think Flaubert, Chekhov, and then there are other authors. I think Flannery O'Connor, just because she's 
she's very, she has got a point that she is making mm-hmm. and she's an advocate. She is telling her tales because she's advocating for a set of virtues for a way that she wants us to see the world. Yeah. And I completely agree. I think Wendell Berry <laughs> has very little negative capability and that should not be a charge against him because I think there are more great writers that belong in that camp um, then there are great writers that have that are that have just strictly negative capabilities, and I mean, like the great ones are some of the all-time greats. I mean, Shakespeare, for my money, yeah. is he, right. you know he's the greatest playwright that ever lived. Right. Um, but like, what does Shakespeare think about things? It's right. really difficult to tell. He's really <laughs> right. difficult to tell. It's so difficult he's, to tell. We argue about whether or not he actually existed. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And he has. And he has. Um, he's preoccupied with the question of the abuse of power and King's rule. You know, he's preoccupied with those sorts of questions, but for every play in which he um, has the King get his revenge, he's got other characters that kind of, I don't know, sometimes get away with it. Okay. So so this might be taking us in a totally different direction, but this is what I'm thinking of while I'm listening to y'all say this. I'm thinking, do different times call for different narrative voices? And is there two Great types question. of storytellers, the parable storyteller and the prophet? Hmm. And they would have, those people have two different voices. Jesus told, Jesus has a lot of negative capability in his parables, right? He's yes. like, we're still debating what, what the heck is he talking about, right? And people on the spot were saying, what the heck is he talking about? And he would just... Is, that's right you know but then there's there, the prophet and he's very clear and he's got the word of god and he's going to give it to you in no uncertain terms right and barry has certainly been called it, the one there's one review that gets put on his books a lot that he's one of the distinct prophetic american voices or something like that or voices of prophetic voices i should of take this as some kind of thesis and write something on this. so <laughs> the prophet in the parable you did you how did you put the question that you just raised is do different do different times call for different narrative voices? So I, I, can I adjust? Yeah, so I think about this a lot. I don't think that it's that different times call for different narrative voices. I think that different times cultivate different narrative voices. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I don't Go think, on with that. So the things that create, you know, writers are not born in a vacuum. Right. Um, and then so the, the, like Barry, Barry, Barry could not have written what he wrote in the 16th century. Just, just like, and just like Jane Austen, for example, would not be the same that she is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and or the same that she was then she wouldn't be the same today. Um, and I think that the, the things that cultures become preoccupied with the ways that culture becomes created in particular, like the habits of mind that create that out of which authors create culture um, or, or any kind of art, you know, any kind of artist creates culture it can vary so wildly. Like the, um, you know, and I think what I'm getting into now is like almost like epistemology, right? Like the way that we, the way that we understand the world, the way we understand the way we think, um, informs the way we create necessarily. Um, and so, I, when when I talk about times, I might even mean like you, you could look at decades, but you could also look at epochs, right, or eras, or whatever. Like you can look at those; they're gonna the, there's gonna be differences of subtlety um, that are gonna evolve over time, um, and so they're gonna make demands, or they're gonna they're gonna make demands on people that lead to voice like changing voices or the evolution of the way we create, which is going to lead to um, the cultivation of I'm, I'm trying to remember how you put it exactly now, Angelina. Different, different. Um, you guys are still there, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. here. I just, um, I'm like, good luck asking me to remember what I just said. Well, so you said, um, <laughs> you said uh, different times. Cultivate. I said cultivate. You said. I said call for. But, call for. But, but I don't disagree with cultivate. Like I'm, I think the only point I'm trying to make is that there's a connection between the particular narrative voice and the particular time. I wasn't necessarily arguing chicken or egg. Right. And I, they're yeah, connected. Yeah, yeah. They're connected in some way. I think this, um, well, this comes back, this comes to the next question that I have queued up here. Nicole 
asks, she mentions that she loved both J. Crow and Hannah Coulter, and that she'll treasure these books and reread them many times. But she does say that she feels they can be a bit preachy at times. It feels in certain places that Barry's mostly just trying to make a statement about something or get a point across rather than staying true to the story. So she mentions the Okinawa chapter. She says she, from the most recent podcast, she recognizes that we all really like that. It was moving. So we might disagree, but she struggled getting through that one because it seemed like a departure from the story and thus felt preacher, so preachy. So she wants to know, is this a defect in her as the reader or do we agree that, um, that Barry's being too preachy, but she's maybe creating a false dichotomy there. I'm going to throw that out there. Tim, I'll give you this one first. Do you think that Barry is being too preachy and that, or, or, and that, or is it a default in the reader yes. or am I right that it's a false dichotomy? No. No, I don't think it's a false dichotomy. I th- who, what, who's the reader that submitted that? Nicole. I think Nicole's right. I think Okinawa was, um, uh, I think it was a shortcoming in the book. Having said, I mean, I love what happened in Okinawa. I do not think it is germane to the rest of the story. It, even like it has kind of a different, it's, it felt like it was in a different voice. It felt um, angry. Um, which Hannah has every right to be angry at what happened, but it, it seems so out of keeping with her character that it felt like um, Barry stepped aside from his main tale and kind of stepped into. So it becomes um, Barry's voice instead of Hannah's. Yeah, it becomes yeah. Barry's voice instead of Hannah's. And I mean, having said that, Wendell Barry has every right to complain against the horrors of war and to not really have. He doesn't need to have a practical answer about how countries stay out of war. I think this is the right of the poet to protest against war because war is insanity. It's insanity. Um, so I, I appreciate, and I think he deserves the license to complain about it, but I do not think that that chapter, as much as I loved it, was in, was in Hannah's voice. I think it was Wendell Berry. Agree, disagree, move on to the next question. Um, well, I, I think to... there, are two, there are two separate questions, I think, in, in the question. So one is, is Wendell Berry preachy? Yes, <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just some people like his voice and some people don't. So I don't know if I'm ready to say it's a flaw in the reader. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just one of those things. Like I gave somebody a copy of Jaber Crow and he absolutely loved it. And when, and so he said to me, how does he get away with it? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he's so preachy, but yeah. it works. And I love yeah. it. But if I tried to write like that, you know, it would be a huge failure. People would tell me to stop preaching. Um, <laughs> right. And I asked the same question. How does he get away with it? Cause I do think he gets away with it. And I love his preachiness. So maybe some people just don't like his voice. And so maybe that's the problem. Now, as far as the Okinawa chapter, Boy, I have been going around in my round in my head on this. I do agree that it feels different than the rest of the book. And I'm wondering if that's a flaw or if it's supposed to represent the fact that Hannah is not dictating her. She's not narrating her own life in this chapter and all the other chapters she has. Basically, she's giving us a research report on, I did a bunch of reading on Okinawa mm-hmm. and now I'm going to narrate yes. to you about it. Plus, I'm going to give some commentary because I hate that this happened to my husband. So yeah. I keep going back and forth. I totally agree. The chapter feels different. Completely agree. So I guess I can't decide if that's a flaw and a failure on his part or if he was trying to make it sound different because for the first time hannah is not connected through firsthand experience about what she's talking about Mm -hmm. let's let's go into another question here this one is less um this, this will be equally have equal chance to um, disagree with one another, but is less <laughs> matters less. Uh, what is the, Kim wants to know, what is the ideal order in which to read the complete Port William books? I've only oh, read I have Jamie no idea. Somebody who knows more than me decision. needs to answer that. I, I can't comment on this because I haven't read them. I read, David, yeah. I didn't, I didn't hear the question, David, you kind of broke up. Could you say Sorry. it again? What is the ideal order in which to read the complete Port William books? Uh, you might be the only one who can answer that. Yeah. I'm going to lob that back to David Kern because I haven't read them yeah. all. I agree. Um, I guess my answer would be in whatever order suits your fancy. But I will say <laughs> that Nathan Coulter, for example, which was written, there was a question on here, but we might get to about the benefits and drawbacks of 
so using the same characters in the same place for so many years. I, I want to say that Nathan Coulter was written in something like 1969. Mm. So he's been working wow. for 40 years or something. And he wrote that originally, I think, I think he was 28, 29, something in that range. And when I interviewed him, he said, you know, this, that was very much the work of a young man. Huh. He doesn't look back at that and say, that's a great book. Does, I, so I so he, he thinks it's not as well crafted or he thinks it's angry because he was young? Um, Good question. I think he feels like it's not as well crafted and that his experience, he didn't have the wisdom to tell the story as well as he could have. Oh, um, interesting. But I do think, but he still is a gift. He was still a gifted writer. I think it's still a good book, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, he feels like he did better work later. I wouldn't read that one first. Um, I, I, I think reading Jaber Crow first is the perfect entrance because mm. it has so many of the characters. Um, and you get the perspective essentially of the, of the outsider. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're meeting the world through the eyes of Jaber, mm-hmm. who is the perfect doppelganger for the reader, so to speak. Doppelganger is not the right word, but you know what I mean. Right. Um, you, you see it through his eyes. It's like when you go through the wardrobe, you should always be the line that which in the wardrobe first because your first experience with the wardrobe should be Lucy going through the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Narnia should be Lucy going through the wardrobe. Emphatic, yes, absolutely. So um, we can, that's another conversation for another day. Um, I would, Meanwhile, I don't know that I would necessarily say read Hannah Coulter at the Yeah, exactly. I don't know that I would read Hannah Coulter at the beginning. Like, um, I think a place on earth is awesome. I think a world lost is excellent. Um, I think um, remembrance is really good. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Right. It, it the short seems, stories are excellent too. It seems to me that it's kind of like asking which of the people in your family should I meet first? Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's a record. The answer of, is none of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a record of relationships. It's a, it's a community and a membership in itself. That's what he's written. And so it doesn't have to be chronological. There's no plot expansion necessarily. You're not going to miss anything. Is that what you're saying, David? Yeah. 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 I mean, the characters evolve. I mean, you're going to meet certain, each book kind of has a different focus on the, mm-hmm. you know, and they go back and forth in time. A lot of the books cover decades anyway, right. Coulter and Jaber Crow. So I don't think there's like a wrong, a wrong way. It's kind of, I would say find the characters that you love mm-hmm. and read more about them. Huh? I, I think that's generally a pretty solid approach. Hmm. Okay. Let's see here. Like, for example, I'll read virtually anything, any story or novel that's got Burley Coulter in it for quite a bit of it. Um, Krista wants to know this. She says, I feel like Wendell Berry's novels are very spiritual. God is mentioned, but in a way that seems to be left up to the reader to credit him if you so wish. Him, capital H-I-M, as in God. Not that Barry or his characters are necessarily giving God credit for creation, life, etc. I wonder if I'm reading it in, in a tone that Barry wasn't intending or if it is exactly how he intends God to be portrayed. Does somebody want David, to take could, you, could you read that one more time? <laughs> yeah. She says, Krista says, I feel like Wendell Berry's novels are very spiritual. God is mentioned, but in a way that seems to be left up to the reader to credit God if you so wish. Not that Barry or his characters are necessarily giving God credit for creation, life, etc. So Krista wonders if she's reading it in a tone that Barry wasn't intending or if it is exactly how he intends God to be portrayed. So I, I, do, you, do you take Krista to be using the word spiritual as a juxtaposition with like religious, like I, the way that I, people say yeah. spiritual, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Yeah. I think from the conversation they had on Facebook, I think that's what she, what she means. Like spiritual yeah. is not explicitly being Christian. You know, I saw that and you know, I guess that's a legitimate question. Again, I'm thinking different stories are emphasizing different things. Like Jay Burke is having theological conversations. Yeah. He's like having a turmoil. Yeah. And like, that's big part of his spiritual journey and his life's journey is these theological questions he's wrestling with, which are clearly Christian doctrine questions. And so that's his story. Uh, Hannah does not seem to have a crisis of faith at any point in the book. And so that's not part of her story, but I did not read it that faith is not important to her. I actually read it as like, it's just so much a part of her that it doesn't even get attention drawn to it. If that makes sense. Yeah. That that yeah. was the same impression I had that it's an assumed part of their life. And uh if if Krista and, and others on Facebook are asking Krista, I, Krista. Yeah, I want to make okay, sure. Is Chris if Krista and others on Facebook are asking if Hannah Coulter is a Christian novel in the sense of Christian as an adjective, no. 
it's it's not intended to be a a Christian novel in that sense, but it's utterly upheld and shot through with the faith. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Cause I want to get through a few of these it, at the end of chapter 22, which is called next. Why does Hannah deny being Mrs. Coulter to the hunter? Is this a, just a playful moment for her? Does she just dis- describe Mrs. Coulter as being gen- a generous old? She does describe Mrs. Coulter as being a generous old woman. I suppose she'd rather have land on which people could hunt with permission or not than have it turned into a development. But why not just say, yes, I'm Mrs. Coulter and sure, go ahead and hunt. She thought it seemed odd. Like all of a sudden, Hannah, who seems to be all alone now, wants to keep herself a secret. Is she trying to find something deeper than is there? That's from Kay. Okay, my 30 second answer is I read it as the community has changed so much that somebody on her own land doesn't recognize her. So, okay. But why does she, so then why does she not say, introduce herself and say, yes, this is my land. I'm not entirely sure. I just thought she was accepting the reality of the change. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Somebody else might have a much deeper reading of that. I didn't spend a lot of time asking myself that, but someone else may have. To, to uh, acknowledge what you're saying is true. That was to me, that little section was the most confusing part of this novel. I read it and reread it and I put question marks by it, but I find it interesting that it is, in the same chapter as her conversation with Kelly Crowley. And it seems to imply that it was even the same day. And so putting it in the context of this other conversation of the man who wants to buy her land that she had known as a child uh, is interesting to me. And one thing I uh, loved about it is just, she's, she's getting kind of feisty in her old age. And I love yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was delightful, that little section with Kelly. Uh, but I too, I, I have some theories, but I wouldn't be willing to give an interpretation of it because it's it's ambiguous. So you're not interpreting, but you do have theories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it? Yeah, you're not going to throw your theories I, out? Well, <laughs> I'm not. I'm with Angelina. I think that she is accepting that things have changed but she does come across a little bit like she doesn't want to be even recognized like i think there's some sadness and some pathos in it that little moment i hadn't thought about it being in the real estate chapter so in that chapter she's not going to give him yes the land but she also knows that she doesn't claim it at the end yeah but after she's dead who knows what's going to Happened to it. I mean, that's before Virgie comes exactly. back. So then Lena, when, yeah. when she sees the kid, she, or the hunter or whatever, yeah. she's basically, she's letting him, she's letting him use it. She's letting it be used by the community, by the membership. Oh, maybe that's it. But she's in a way that she's maybe doesn't prefer, but she's not laying, she's not like claiming it. She's not like putting a Yeah, stake. there's something oh. about the not claiming ownership to it, I think. Like the, almost a, almost a recognition that it's a gift. She's, it's altogether yeah. given an act right. of gratitude. Hmm. Like I'm, uh, even if I'm here now, but her. yeah, Sorry. it's not always going to be my land. I'm going to die. And then the kids are going to do what they're going to do. And I'm going to keep it from Kelly Crowley, but I'm going to give it to these so, people who are leaving it as it is and using it. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I, you know, I read it so simply. I thought it was just kind of playful bit of dramatic irony like Odysseus showing up and the suitors not recognizing him. Huh. <laughs> yeah. By the way, you're a little bit quiet. We can hear yeah. you. But you're a little quiet. So I don't know if you need to get closer to the mic or something. We'll make sure that the listeners can hear you. Right. Odysseus. That's good, Tim. The, I do like the idea of it being some dramatic irony, which I think, you know, some sometimes one of the complaints about Barry's work is how sort of like tonally serious it is right even though there's like funny scenes like formally it's sort of serious and buttoned up and when he plays with things i I think he's good at it and so like i like the idea that could all but it could be both well and he's usually so straightforward right i mean that i get to this one little bit that's a little bit ambiguous i'm like throwing up my hands like i don't know what to make of this like so yeah i didn't really know what to make of it either (laughs) i liked the scene though i smiled about it you there are a ton of questions on here about Okinawa. And so we can only get to, yeah, I want to just let people, we, we made it a pass at it, but people might have to go onto the Facebook page to continue that conversations. Um, 
Okay, here's one more question from Nicole. Nicole's had lots of questions. Hannah writes many times that this is the story of her gratitude. Do you think this would be a story of her gratitude had Virgie not returned? Yes, because the first Virgil didn't return and she found something to be grateful for. Tim? Yeah, I agree. I think there'd be, I think it would be laced with a lot more sadness, but I still think it would be a story of gratitude. Hmm. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Let's see here. Um, Kimberly posted something, but I don't see a question mark. So I don't think it's a question. Um, <laughs> um, she, she Hannah makes her want to run to her, her mama and kiss her and write down all her wisdom today. <laughs> um, lots of people agreed with that. Oh, um, you know, I, I want to say something about that if I can very quickly. A lot, a lot of people had that comment about, I want to go write down the stories. And so, okay. So this, here's what I thought, and I'm going to, say my personal experience here and then maybe somebody will say you're the only person in the world who's ever had this experience or maybe somebody else will relate to it. So Burley Coulter in this book is the rememberer. Barry points that out. In Jay Crow, he calls particular people the rememberer. They hold the stories of the community. Yes. One of the things that it occurs to me is not every person is a rememberer. That's a particular role that some people play. Um, the first time I read Jay Crow, I had the same experience and literally ran to my grandmother. <laughs> who's still alive and in her 80s. And I ran to her and I was like, I'm going to hear the what's what of the history of America, right? She couldn't do it. She literally couldn't do it. I would ask her questions. I've read this about this such and such a time period and you lived through this. What was your experience like? I even picked pop culture things that I knew she was deeply connected to. Like, for example, the whole controversy around the casting of um, Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara in 1939, right? Like she was big into that. I wanted to get the behind the scenes. She, her answers would just be like, yeah. I was like, but what was it like? Well, it was just like how you said in the book. <laughs> and I could not get any story out of her. And I realized she's not a storyteller. She never had crafted the events in her life as part of a narrative. And therefore she honestly could not tell it back to me. That's not how she viewed reality. My mother, on the other hand, is a huge storyteller. Um, but in terms of these books, I wonder if that, I wonder if the rememberer is a particular role that some people have, but not everyone's a rememberer. Nathan uh, is not a storyteller, right? Right. Hannah is a storyteller. Burley is a storyteller. And maybe that's Barry's role. Like he views himself as I talked a lot yes. about one of the first couple episodes that for Barry, it's about giving voice to nowhere places. Right. I wrote that article and I it got entitled mm. by the editor, Wendell Barry loves your nowhere place. Mm. And I think that that is the fundamental that he's giving voice to that. And he is, he sees himself as a rememberer as the, as a lot of the things that happen in his books are real stories. Right. He talks about that with Martin Cawthron and I, that like some of the things that in the memory of old Jack, for example, are things he, he was a kid listening to these men talk about their children being killed during the war. Wow. And they're like, mm. maybe the words aren't exactly the same. The quotes aren't exactly the same, but that is his, he, he is the rememberer of a place that right. is being forgotten. Um, that is what, how he sees his role. Right. And he then endows, I think, his characters with the same sort of, um, with the same sort of role, I guess, is the most simplistic way of putting it. Right, which is why I continue to feel torn. I'm sitting over here thinking about the Okinawa chapter and whether or not it works in the formal sense, which I could be convinced either way. I think I, that's I, why Barry... Can, included it is because he he needed to have a place in this story for Hannah to remember mm -hmm. Nathan and his life and those but he couldn't mm -hmm. have Nathan yeah. tell her the story right, right? because that right. wouldn't fit with Nathan's character yeah and so in a sense then there Hannah's doing yes. I'm sorry Go Hannah's ahead. doing for Nathan what Wendell Berry is doing for Hannah right exactly yes and I think that you know one of the things that's troubling about it is that Barry himself is trying to give us a lifetime's worth of thoughts about a complicated subject. Right. Like about the idea of war and what, what it means to have an enemy mm -hmm. and to destroy an enemy. And people have posted a right. lot of really eloquent comments on there about, you know, my grandparents came from Japan and were freed by the allies and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's such a complicated issue. Right. And so he's trying to take a complicated issue and give it a voice. Give yes. it a voice and spill yeah. it. And and I, we, and, we're and, not going to agree with everything he sure. says. Right. Right. But, and, and, I, and I think that you have to remember that ultimately what he's saying about war is that war on some level is always that you have forgotten that someone else is made in the image of God. 
Right. Somewhere, right. someone down, down the line, someone forgot that. Right. That's true. Um, and so right. I don't think that he was trying to get into the politics of was the ally it was America's interest in the world war II justified or not. Like he, that's not a question he's asking. Right. I think right. he's going way before that. Right. He's not saying it was wrong to free people from dictators who were destroying them. Right. Better to right. have avoided this altogether. If we could have remembered that everyone's made in the image of God. Right. Yeah. That there's something deeper than the political, the politics that drove people in centuries ago. But so many books from the beginning of the world has asked this question. I mean, Achilles says, do we not all have wives? Why are we dying for you, Menelaus? Like, this is, this is a, a universal oh. question that literature has asked. Right. Yeah. Why are we fighting right. this war? Why am I dying over this? Speaking of universal questions, then let's go to my last question here to wrap it up. Somebody asked a, a question that I think is worth asking about virtually every book we do on this show, given when most of them are written. In a couple hundred years, do you think Barry's books will be still remembered? I'm going to give you each. This, this is a good spot, spot for some final thoughts. I'm going to let uh, Heidi go first on this one. Um, if I'm being really honest, I to go back to our early conversa earlier conversation when we were talking about the particular time and the particular place, I think for the most part... This is an overgeneralization, I'm sure. And you guys can absolutely prove me wrong. I am not emotionally attached to this theory. But for the most part, Keats makes the point that the authors with the most negative capability tend to be the most enduring authors in general. I think Wendell Berry is deeply, profoundly relevant in a changing culture that is losing its identity. If we need that in the future, he may come around again. If not, I'm not sure he will. Hmm. Other voices on that? Angelina, what do you think? Um, so I think that's fair. I don't necessarily agree that it's the authors with the most negative capability that they're long, longest lasting. I'm thinking about like every single Victorian author. <laughs> Charles Dickens is still That's a great popular. point. That's a really he's good point. Super breachy. I mean, he's basically a character in all these books. That's um, true, Angelina. Well, I think that, that what you're getting into there is like the way the novel has evolved though, because I think Barry, you know, earlier novels no, generally true. were. And so Barry true. fits in more, the spirit of Barry is much more akin with like a Dickens than it is with most contemporary. Right. So for, true. and I am, and by no means an apologist for the canon. I hardly ever think about, you know, what belongs in and what I just uh -huh. accept it. But so the quote, so this is just strictly theory, but I sort of always feel like the books that last the longest are the ones that deal with transitional periods. Um, huh. Shakespeare is included in that, right? Yeah, Jane um, yeah, that's true. So, so I do think Wendell Berry is speaking in basically the modern version of the barbarian invasion, right? Like our civilization's falling apart, and he's stepping forward and saying, "We got to think about what we've lost and think about how to rebuild it." So, I do. Mm -hmm. I think he's a transitional voice and will still be around. Maybe not his whole canon, but I think I think he will be somebody that's yeah. remembered. And of course, there are matters of degree on this. Sure. I mean, is he? Is he like, is he Mark Twain or is he Ambrose Bierce? Huh. You know? Yeah. Oh, right. Um, Ambrose Bierce is remembered by a lot of people and he's considered a right. key man of American letters, but that doesn't mean, but he's not. not I've never everybody. read him. Well, you, you will soon. I never um, So, um, <laughs> uh, Tim, final, I'll let you have the uh, final, final word on this one, I suppose. I don't think that he'll be read I think he will be read about in a hundred years. I don't know that he'll be read. He, he reminds me of not in his subject matter, but in his, what he's trying to do of a philosopher called Vico, V I C O. Have you guys ever heard of Vico? Mm -mm. No, no. Which kind of, Good, because it kind of supports my point. You know, he's <laughs> Vico. You mean my favorite author of all time? Yeah. Vico is kind of the counter enlightenment guy, right when the enlightenment is really taking off. Hmm. Um, and he is, he is so you're saying we should read Oh, I think he's worth reading, but he's more in the literature. People refer to what Vico was doing but very rarely is Vico assigned. Right. And I right. kind of think, I think a lot of people will look back and they'll say, 
Wendell Berry was one of the voices that protested what was happening in the American landscape, or maybe broadly in the West. But I don't know that he'll be assigned as a primary reading. Mm. Huh. What do you think, David? I don't know. I don't know. I The one thing I think we forget about stuff like this is it's not like, say, Mark Twain or Jane Austen or someone was just, they had this incredible gifting that was so far superior to every other writer from the period. And thus the, the, the spirit of literature of all time grabbed it and said, this is one that must come along. Right. Like there's not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's, there is a degree to which some of this involves some, shall I say, good luck, good fortune. The fates have to be with them. You know, you look at someone like Dickinson, for example, or, you know, even like a Fitzgerald or whatever that they, or, um, was it Keats, right? Like, like these guys, they die. Nobody likes them when they're alive. And then for whatever reason, the zeitgeist Hmm. zeitgeist after zeitgeist. I think I have established that, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, right. Carries them along and the fates and good fortune and whatever. Right. Make them meaningful. So, so I don't know. I think he, I think he is capable of being a voice Mm -hmm. and he has the gift, the the skills to be a voice that speaks to future generations. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But I don't know. And the canon did not come down from on high from Mount Sinai to speak to your point. And authors fall in and out of fashion, including much to our horror, Shakespeare, who wasn't read for well over a hundred years because people thought, oh, that guy. Yeah, Dante, Dante. Right. Same thing. So, you know, maybe a hundred years from now, we won't read Wendell Berry. Maybe maybe 200 years, he'll be the newly rediscovered awesome thing. I mean, you honestly never know about these things. Yeah. And and you look at like what's going on right now with with Mark Twain, where he's because of because of content in them. Right. You know, right. who knows why a culture decides, point. okay, we're going to dismiss like in 15 years, uh, in 10 years, five years, whatever, we're not, people are not going to, it's not going to be okay to read Mark Twain. Right. I, I think that, right. I think it's going to be. But in a hundred years, it could be okay again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And in 200 years, we might look back and say that Mark Twain, like the, the, the skill level, the things he's saying speak across more than just the 19th, 19th century America. Oh, such like, a good point, I just David. think, this this is a very complicated question, and we need, you know, there there are literary historians, which is a different thing than like a we literary a scholar needs to, you know, I think yeah, exactly we need a prophet. <laughs> well, we and that's why about himself, you know, and that's why ultimately it takes time to tell us what a classic is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And you know, we can ask. I think I honestly think we can say the same thing about C.S. Lewis. Sure. Like the same question could be in a hundred years. Are we going to think about C.S. Lewis right. the same way we think of right. Augustine? Oh, or absolutely. I have a, a, a literature scholar friend who thinks C.S. Lewis is wildly overrepresented in our particular world. Well, and during his time, Tolkien was, nobody read Tolkien while he was alive. Yeah. And mm. Lewis was far more popular. But I, I think Lord of the Rings is likely to be more enduring than some of Lewis's right. fiction. I, yeah, I agree. Well, I think we all I, know how I feel about Lewis's fiction. So. <laughs> it's definitely a, a, an epic for all time. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason yeah. I think that, not that this is about Lewis, but part of the reason I think Lewis is so popular is because he fills a role, especially among literate Christians, that nobody right. else fills. Who yeah. else plays that yeah. role? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe right. G.K. Chesterton some... But G.K. Chesterton's work is is very, I think of it as a, a little bit more, it's dealing with a lot of contemporary issues. He's arguing with George Bernard Shaw about like particular aspects of socialism in Great Britain, you know, and yeah. Lewis yeah. kind of zooms over that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the reason he has so much staying power. Huh. Yeah. So, in our in our particular group, though, like in, in a secular group, uni- right. in, in a secular university, I never heard anything about Lewis. He's not on their yeah. radar in that way. Nor right. would he be. They don't find that unless a message that unless you it's a medieval history he's writing. If he's like, no, that, his, no, yes, and I right. often make that distinction. Lewis, the literary scholar, is treated very different than Lewis, the apologist or the novelist. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was true in his own lifetime too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been our, this has been Hannah Coulter. This is a good conversation. Lots of great questions from people. I think there were like 168 total comments on that thread. Lots of people responding to each other's questions. So um, if you want to join the conversation and have your own opinions that you want to 
you want to throw out it's there. It's okay if you y'all didn't love Hannah Coulter. It's okay. I just wanted to say a lot of people that were like posting confessionals. Like I felt like yeah. I was on the website whisper, you know, like yeah, I was gonna I say really this. like yep. I didn't really like Hannah Coulter. It's okay. We still love you. You don't have to love it. Yeah, you know, I mean, we think that it's I worth reading, you, but you don't have to. But. <laughs> There's a difference between us saying this book is worth reading on the show and discussing it and trying to understand it then like when we choose a book we're not saying that you should love this book right we're saying you should read this book and think mm -hmm. about it and hopefully some of them are books that become books that as tim would call them heart books right um and a few but, people said that the first time they read hannah Coulter, they didn't love it but reading it this time they did which again that speaks to how books work yeah right a lot of it That's just true. depends on where you are in your life right yeah well, hey, I need to say once again, thanks to Augustine College in the United States for sponsoring Close Reads. And if you want to learn more about them, you can go to truthisbeautiful.org. Uh, oh, and hey, um, Tim, we heard hey, that um, you you won an award for, or you're, you're a finalist for an award for a play that you wrote several years ago. I did. I won an award. This is a factual thing? This is a factual thing. I'm a little bit reluctant to like be really detailed about it because they told me that I had received the award, but what does that mean? I mean, does that mean there's a production involved? A million mean, dollars? Like, I get, Cash prize? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Cash prize? <laughs> My hunch is that it means a hearty handshake is what it means. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Sometimes a hearty handshake is a nice thing to to uh, to receive. That at least if it makes you feel them. better, Tim, like David was saying, most most authors die poor and unheard of in their life. <laughs> right. But right. you might have a really a great second coming later. <laughs> realize that does not pay the electric bill. But <laughs> right, right. Well, we just wanted to say. Um, Good job on that. Good job by you. Thank and um, congratulations. Congratulations. We yeah. hope that it means, you, you know, at least a hearty handshake. <laughs> I hope so. And a I paid so. electric bill. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, all right. Well, that's Seriously, it. That's... Like a cable free internet for a year. Like that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I would try my hand at plays for that. Um... <laughs> so would I. I just I'd Google. Got me, you know, public domain plays, and then I right. <laughs> submit it I'm everywhere. Gonna start, I'm going to start submitting things all over the place for that. All right. Well, again, we wanted to just say, give you a shout out for that, Thanks. and congratulations. And um, all right. Well, that that is our conversation on Hannah Coulter. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, thanks to Heidi for joining us, and um, for uh, to Angelina and Tim for your ongoing conversations, and of course, thanks to Augustine College and to everyone who's been listening. Yes, thanks um, to Heidi. For thanks to all y'all. Thanks, David. The craziness. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. For Heidi White, for Angelina Stanford, and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week here on Close Reads. Enjoy the glass menagerie. Mm -hmm.